Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Today is pretty simple. We honor someone that was close to not just the program, but so many people in the NBA family. And when they say NBA family, uh, and when he did, David Stern meant it. David Joel Stern was the fourth commissioner of the NBA, succeeding Larry O'Brien in 1984. During his 30 years on the job, he was credited with the growth of the game all over the world. When we spoke in late October of 2019, here was how I teed up our conversation. He's not only the former NBA commissioner, but a person who I think is responsible for putting together the most progressive, inclusive league that is almost known to man. I can't, and I know it's a low bar because sometimes you have to compare yourself to the NFL no, <laughs> and I'm some not, of the other. I'm not comparing myself to anybody, no matter how, you're not going to get me today. That was a brief glimpse of David's playful side, and his sense of humor was wicked. More on that shortly. But David Stern wasn't always the commanding presence that he became as NBA commissioner. When I asked him about his mentors, he was quick to explain what he learned from them. I would say the three people stick out in in sort of reverse order of uh, the timing. Larry O'Brien showed me the true meaning of the word politics. He would say, okay, what do I have to get done? Just tell me. I I don't have to spend a fortune of time doing it. And then he began moving it. Uh, By way of example, in 1976, the owners voted after they settled the Robertson case that they would not uh, merge with the ABA. We will not merge. So Larry said, what should we be doing? He said, we should be merging, Larry. So he said, okay, let's let's work on it. And by (laughs) September of that year, which was, I think... In February, we probably settled it in principle. You're a junior NBA lawyer at this yeah. point. Uh, yeah, I wasn't so junior at this point. I was actually up there. Uh, okay. Having, I was 10 years in practicing law, so I was leading the way in settling the Robertson case. But uh, Larry got it done. Uh, before that... Uh, and right there, you learned flexibility. Flexibility, but also think it out. How do you... How do you See, politics is the mm. art of getting something done. I, I don't know what the dictionary meaning is, but that's politics is the art of getting, accomplishing something that you want to get done. And Larry was a master at that from his days with running JFK's campaigns, you know, things like that. Mm. And so he was very, very good at that. And he taught Russ Granick and me a lot about that. Uh, before that, there was a gentleman by the name of George Gallants at the Proskauer firm where I practiced law. And George was a stickler for detail, but always had time for a good joke. And so he uh, he kept me 
on a very tight leash when it came to writing and correcting and being focused on what was important. So I, I still, it's the old story. I think Pascal said it. If I have more, if I had more time, this letter would be shorter. Mm. And that's what George taught about the relentless pursuit of perfection, as we used to call it. And other than that, it's my for that it was my dad who ran Stern Delicatessen, and. Uh, Tell people where that was. That was at 8th Avenue and 23rd Street. And uh, What did it become? I passed by it recently. I don't remember. It's become something else. Uh, although it might still be a deli. I'm not sure. It, the, the block moved, but it was an old-fashioned block. It had a barber, a shoe store, a haberdashery, uh, a, uh, you know, a luncheonette, the florist. It was... Growing up uh, in a very simple time, what did you? What did he teach you? Well, if you had to pick one thing that he really that, that you remember about him, well, is that uh, repetition of tasks is an important thing. We did the same thing every day. <laughs> you know, it was four o'clock. You had to mop the floor. You had to pack out the showcases. You had to uh, days of the week. You had to cook a, something that had to be cooked. It was. It wasn't a sit-in deli. It was just a, an old-fashioned yeah. deli that you came in, and, and and it was a time. I, I think I remember that a six-pack of beer was. You know, the, the specialties were like ninety-nine cents for a six-pack of beer. For a six-pack of beer. Yeah, and uh, a container of milk was nineteen cents. So what? I, what are you? hundred. I'm dating myself. Yeah, I am old, but it's. Uh, <laughs> It's uh, it's fun to recollect, and that's great. The other thing I remember is that I could never exactly please him. That's what fathers are for. So when we went from writing down the prices of things on a paper bag mm-hmm. and then adding up the column, I remember when national cash registers came in and began, uh, you know, electrifying, so to speak. The and everyone had their own letter. So each clerk was identified, and my letter was L for lazy. So I remember that, too. So They used to call you lazy? They never called me lazy, but that's what they said. When you, or you're L for lazy. That's all. No, I worked that hard. That must have hurt. No, it didn't. I worked hard. I remember I used to drive in from school at Rutgers and sometimes worked a night shift. Uh, they were open from 9 in the morning till 1 in the morning. So we did a lot of stuff. Saturday night later. Does your dad even like basketball? Do you remember uh, growing up? Yeah, he well, he enjoyed it. We used to go to games at the garden, the yeah. garden. It was fun. Yeah. And you get this job and you're No, unfortunately, he never got the opportunity. He passed before I became commissioner. How old was he when, how old were you when he died? I was I have to work backwards. I think he died in 19 Oh boy, he was 62. And he was born in 19... Young. And he was born in 1918. And my a heart mom, attack? Oh, he, he a stroke, heart attack. He was, uh, you know, he pushed around for 12 years mm-hmm. after he became ill. So he taught me something there, too. He really wanted to see his grandchildren, so he kept pushing. And he, he was a great fighter. Oh, your mom must have told yeah, him that and, he'd be proud of you. Yeah, and my mom, the only time she ever initiated a call because she used to not want to bother me at the office, was it came across CNN that I had just gotten a big bonus and signed a new contract. So she called, 
and the conversation goes on and on and on. I say, Mom, what's up? Well, it says here that X, Y, Z. I said, well, it's, don't worry, Mom. It's never as large as they say it is, but I'm comfortable. She and wanted a piece of your so money. You. No, That's she what? just, she was comfortable, too. That's great. Sternus Delicatessen, as I said, it was the seat of the family empire. The what? The, the seat of the empire. The seat of the empire. Yeah. While Stern's Delicatessen was the seat of the family empire, David turned the NBA into a worldwide empire. In order to achieve that goal, he was incredibly demanding when it came to the dignity of the players in the sport. David Stern knew all about keeping it real long before the term was invented. Your own Hoop magazine, the in-house magazine, has a cover story of Allen Iverson, and Allen Iverson is tatted up, and he got... Someone airbrushed their, his yeah. tattoos, and you were furious. You thought that Allen Iverson should be portrayed as he is. Right. And so we're, could you talk about that push and no, pull I, as I a think... commissioner? And how you don't want to alienate your customer base, but you also want to let these people be who they are, irrespective of white, black, whatever. No one ever asked me about that, and I was crazed on the subject of Allen Iverson's tattoos being... Uh, it was inauthentic. There's a, yeah. a tattoos being, you know, so-called whited out, so to speak. Yeah, uh, that was terrible. Um, did you did you fire the guy or did you no, just tell him it was no, to reprimand him? No, no. We say we're gonna you got to keep at it until you get it right. That was the penalty, was to uh, suffer me for a longer period of time. Stern's demand for authenticity paid off handsomely for the league. And his instincts about how a league comprised of mostly black players would eventually be embraced turned out to be correct. I'm very proud that our society was as we projected it would be. We got a group, a small group of us together, and we said, look, guys, we've got the best athletes in the world playing the most exciting game, and we're going to keep saying it until it comes true. And uh, we said it and said it and said it. I was the 24th employee of the NBA, believe it or not. And so I had the opportunity to hire some of the best people in sports in the various functions that they performed, and it was great. And, and yes, people said that because our players averaged $250,000, they were making so much money, that's why... <laughs> They took drugs because you, you know, and then they had af afros uh, were the, yeah. the day, and then came the tattoos, et cetera. But it was kind of interesting. People would say, well, what do you think about these gold chains and all these things like that, Stern? I said, you mean the elderly Jewish men in Miami? Or, you know, <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> so you know, you have to, if you didn't have a sense of humor, you couldn't yeah. get through it because... We were pounded. We were really pounded. If you ask me what the most, what the thing is that I'm most proud of is that the players of the NBA, when I first got involved, were like in the basement of the celebrity pyramid. Oh. And now they're at the tippy, tippy top. David Stern always understood that the players were far more than just athletes. And he never lost sight of the fact that many of them used their celebrity and money for great causes. Remember that wicked sense of humor I mentioned before? David nailed me with it a couple times during our hour and 15-minute conversation. During my years writing about the league for the New York Times and the Washington Post, David saw my work and didn't always agree with me. You didn't like a lot of the things I write, wrote. No, actually, that's not true. No, no, I you. thought I thought you were writing to the limits of your capability, actually. <laughs>
That one left a mark, but I didn't back down. Now comes the meat of the interview, now that I've softened you up with all the family no, stuff. This no, is the hard stuff. No, I'm, some of it I'm not going to answer, so go I ahead. understand that. I understand that. But you will be gotten before this is over. You know that, don't you? No. Okay. Well, I'll just try. Can you guys hear him okay, by the way? Because he's I'm okay. fine. Right. I have a, two mics. I'm all right, doing all right, great. Okay, so... <laughs> I don't know how to say this, Mike. Go ahead. Go ahead. You don't have the intellectual acuity to catch me. Yeah, this is. I'm going to be very nice to you. Sadly, the commissioner is right. Okay. I'm <laughs> sadly, the commissioner is right. There's no friend like an old friend. Go yeah, ahead. Ask the question. Uh, so, uh, I uh, I wanted to, <laughs> I wanted to get speechless, to speechless, huh? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, it was like a standing eight count. Okay, he tagged me pretty good again. Among David Stern's many skills, he was a world-class ball buster, but it was always good-natured. I don't know if Mike can take the pressure. Be careful. All right, go ahead. (laughs) This is great, by the way, just catching up with you. If if these microphones weren't here, I would feel feel the same way. One of David's priorities was growing the game internationally. Of the four American Major League sports, the NBA was way ahead of the curve when it came to global marketing. In fact, basketball has become the second most popular sport in the world, trailing only soccer when it comes to interest in other countries. That was no accident. At what point um, do, you, do you understand like the dream team becomes a reality? Is it before that or after that where you, where you think to yourself, this thing can become a global phenomenon? It was actually before that. It okay. was, uh, we traveled to what was then the Soviet Union with the Atlanta Hawks in 1988. And we, uh, we played games in Tbilisi, the capital of Soviet Georgia. We played games in, played a game in Moscow, mm. and we played a game in Lithuania, Vilnius. And I guess two things happened then. Number one, in... Um, in... Soviet Georgia, the largest applause at the introductions was for Spud Webb. And the I little said, guy. I said, How do they? What's going on? Well, it turns out that there were pirated tapes from that were playing on Turkish television, and people were getting either getting it or getting the tapes from Turkish television. I don't remember which one. And they were watching the slam dunk contest in Dallas, and I guess it was eighty six or eighty seven. I can't remember exactly. Which five foot six Spud yeah, Webb won? Right. Okay. And so, oh, that's interesting. And then we went on to uh, Lithuania, and we get, went to Kaunas, and Kaunas is like the Indiana of the former Soviet Union. It's a basketball country. That's where. Sharunas was from. Yeah, that's where uh, Arvidas Sabonis was mm-hmm. from. And we sit down, we exchange pleasantries, give gifts and things like that. And assembled is the mayor, the head of the local basketball federation, the head of the national federation of Lithuania, the head of the communist party of the region, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And after we get rid of every part of the conversation, they want to know whether I think it's fair that Sabonis is on the Portland draft list, but they don't have room under the cap to sign him. Wow. So these guys who had these guys who had pledged their lives to the system and the uh, they want to know 
if Arvidas Sabonis is ever going to get a chance in the greatest league, no yes. demand. And, and by the way, it isn't so much that they pledged their lives because in we should have known in Soviet Soviet Georgia, breakup in Soviet Georgia, they booed the Russian national team, and so you begin begin to get a sense of what's going on there. Uh, and and our players like Sharonis, we used to say. I'm not Russian, I'm Lithuanian, mm-hmm. even though it was formerly still the Soviet Union, but people called it Russia, and the Lithuanians denied that it, it, they were Russians and they wouldn't speak Russian. So, you've, so now you've... Now I got it, I, I saw it, and then we went, we took uh, the Celtics to Spain in 88. Real Madrid, I remember. Yeah, and... Uh, you know, we still have the footage or at least a tape of Johnny Most. He pa- this guy passes it to the guy with the beard, and the guy with the beard passes it to the guy who's ah, The guy with the beard. The guy. Yeah. And actually, it was Vladi Divac, I think, playing for, I, I can't remember, Partizan <laughs> from Belgrade. Yeah. It was, a, it was a, and the place was packed, and, you know, and so, and so I don't remember when we took the Bulls to Paris. It was shortly after But that. I think it was in the late 80s. Yeah. And uh, Michael Jordan was a sensation walking through the streets with his beret on. And I was watching the game with the president of the French Republic. I can't... I don't remember his name. It wasn't one of the... It wasn't like Jacques Was Chirac it Mintrand or, or no? No, no, no. It was another gentleman who... If he wasn't the president, he was the prime minister. They flipped back and forth. Ah, uh, French. And, I, and he said, Can I, I'd like to go into the locker room. I said, oh, that's great, after the game. I said, would you like to see Michael? He said, no, I'd like to meet Dennis Rodman. <laughs> the French... That, the, the president of the French Republic wants to... That's when I knew that we were definitely going to be a, <laughs> uh, an international sport. So it's... And, and another story often told, I was in China, we went to Xi'an to see the terracotta yeah. soldiers, and uh, our overall guide had arranged for a local guide, and the local guide knew that I was somehow involved with the NBA, and she told our, our guide, the main guide, that she was a great fan of the Red Oxen. And our guide said she doesn't even know the difference between an oxen and a bull. <laughs> okay, that was it. So she was, here we she go. She was a fan of the bulls. She was a fan of the bulls. While the acrimony between the NBA and the People's Republic of China flared up following Houston general manager Daryl Morey's social media support for protesters in Hong Kong, there's a nearly 30-year history of cordial relations between China and the league. And when Stern visited a former South African political prisoner who became president of his country, he was reminded once again how sports could build bridges between different societies. We thought that basketball rose above it. One of the photos on my wall that I'm proudest of is we visited South Africa in 93, and Nelson Mandela said that uh, he believed that basketball could be bring people together. And this is the year before apartheid ends. Yes, and he... And he lived it, in, uh, and it was documented in the uh, movie Invictus, yep. where he supported the essentially mostly virtually all 
white rugby team, team to bring people together. David Stern always thought of the NBA community, including media types who covered the league as a family. And pardon the pun, but he could be a very stern father figure at times. Everyone in the NBA family was allowed to be themselves, but everyone was also held accountable for their performance. David always tried to find the best people to bring into the family. And one of those people was the man who succeeded him as commissioner in 2014. When you first hired Adam, what was he doing? He was an attorney at a leading New York law firm looking about it, looking at his career options. And okay. he came to talk to me because he was about he was a litigator and he was about at Cravath, Swain and Moore, one of the leading yeah. firms in New York. He was about to consider going to the US attorney's office. That was a career path that is not unusual. Yeah. Go to the US attorney's office for a couple of years as an assistant US attorney then return and become a career litigator. And I said, if you're prepared to, uh, to work that cheaply, you should come to work with me and you'll be my special assistant. So Adam started as my special assistant, then he became the chief of staff, then he became senior vice president of something, and then you put then him into, president, and then he was the president of NBA Entertainment. President of NBA Entertainment, then deputy commissioner. Yeah. And the only thing wrong with all of those five is that they reported to me. <laughs> so he, uh, he, he really, very, well, he learned at your, it was fun. he learned at your knee. And it he, is, he, it is so rewarding to have a in-house successor who is known to everybody and knows yeah. everybody. So it was a, it's a, it was a seamless Seamless transition, and we had yeah. a great time doing it. Have you made a conscious effort to stay out of his way publicly, uh, and and when people? Yeah, yeah, yes. I uh, not to stay out of his way publicly, but you know, I walked out of the NBA uh, on Feb one, twenty fourteen, made a right hand turn on Fifth Avenue, and came to these offices. Have you been back since? Oh yeah. All right. I, I wasn't back the first year, but since then. You know, what, uh, what being a consultant means that if somebody dies who no one heard of, they bring me back to do a video <laughs> tribute. That's my most important uh, consulting role. But we talk, and, uh, uh, you know, there's a lot of history. And we worked together for 20 years, but before that, I was at the NBA for, I guess, 15 years. So... There's a lot of things that I used to say. There are, I not only know where some of the bodies are buried, and I buried some of them, but that got me in trouble once in collective bargaining, so I don't say that anymore. You actually, I remember that. Yeah. And you got in trouble for it? Well, someone somehow thought that I was threatening them. And oh, that you were that, going to actually take out some people because you have that kind of power. Yeah, which I didn't, never had, but that was kind of funny to me, but that's all. There's been some writers that have shown up in interesting places. I'm just saying. Yeah, like like uh, along with Jimmy Hoffa. Right, exactly. You better be careful today. <laughs> actually, people think that it was Dr. King who said free at last. It was actually Adam <laughs> because he was free at last. And I'm having a ball watching. Free at last when you, when when, you left. When I, when I turned over the keys after 30 uh, years. Uh. Actually, in some ways, both of us were free. While David set the bar very high for everyone associated with the league, 
He expected a lot from himself as well. And after he turned things over to Adam Silver, the league was in great shape on every level. But in spite of his spectacular success as commissioner of the NBA for 30 years, he was honest about some of the things he wished had gone differently. It, if, there was a, if there was a regret or a strong regret you had that you wished you'd either dealt with or dealt with better, what would it be? Well, in an interesting way, you know, number one, I think that anytime you have a lockout or a strike, it's a failure. Of right. Types. But number two, I was, uh, I was a little bit easy on coaches. Really? When they began, you know, like Phil Jackson and Pat Riley, anytime one lost a playoff game to the other, they would invoke, oh, the league office wanted us to go this way or that way. And I probably should have suspended them. They were accusing because you of they basically were, f- fixing. Well, aside from that, they were feeding the notion to our fans that there was something less than up and up about the officiating. Yeah. And, I, and, the, the, and the Donaghy, the Tim Donaghy thing was one of the, you, I mean, you were, you, were, you were bothered by that like few things. Well, you know, it's kind of interesting to be sitting in your office when the FBI comes in to tell you you've got a referee that's betting on games. That's like, holy Moses. But, but the coaches, and I, and I wrote, used to write it off or laugh it off and say, listen, if you're not crazy when you become a coach, you get to be crazy. Yeah. And at playoff times, the moon gets full and these guys are baying at it. And so I said, okay, I'll, I'll move on, maybe slap a fine or something. But I, I think that contributed to the notion that refereeing was a problem. And it's interesting to note that Adam has worked very hard on systematic approaches to refereeing. Um, yeah. But he still hasn't stamped out the sort of the easy statement that it's easy for members of the media to make about a particular call or a particular game. And that's, that's, that has its own corrosive impact. So Pat Riley and Phil Jackson should realize that David Stern gave them the benefit of the doubt because he understood that all coaches are out there. And speaking of out there. The great Bill Walton wrote up there, the most important person in the history of basketball. I, I gave him that to write on the <laughs> You told him that. No, I didn't. No. He's uh, he very effusive. Well, the big redhead from San Diego may occasionally be prone to hyperbole. There is little doubt he is correct about David Stern's importance to the NBA and the sport of basketball. When David retired from the NBA in 2014, he created a new company called David Stern Global Advisors, where he nurtured startup companies with investment and strategic advice. Although he was in an age where people in his position would have focused on tennis and retirement, David lived in the moment and always looked to the future. Some of your contemporaries have passed. Your father passed at 62. Has any of that put you in touch with your own mortality a little bit? Uh, I'm a great at denial. <laughs> I don't even think about it. Really? No. So you don't think about, like, any of <laughs> well, your last years or, or what you want to do before you uh, no, leave I, the earth? No, I want to be bu- I want to be busily engaged, and that's it. That's what I want to be doing. And that is exactly what he did. David Stern's legacy is secure. If the NBA erected statues at the league office the way the Lakers do at the Staples Center, the man who led the NBA for 30 years should be immortalized in bronze. 
But even if that statue is never commissioned, David Stern will long be remembered as one of the most visionary and progressive figures in the history of sports.